Warm Regards is supported by Wonder Capital, an award-winning online investment platform that allows individuals to invest directly in solar energy projects across the U.S. Earn up to 11% annually while diversifying your portfolio, curbing pollution, and combating global climate change. Create an account for free at wondercapital.com warm. That's wonder with a U, wondercapital.com warm. Wonder Capital. Do well and do good. Hey everybody, this is Warm Regards, a dialogue between the climate scientists, newsmakers, journalists, and people on the front lines of climate change. I'm Eric Holthouse here in Tucson, Arizona. We're going to tackle a bold and controversial statement this week, and here it is. This year, 2016, the year that is happening right now, is likely the single warmest year in the history of human civilization. More than any other year in recent history, 2016 is proving that climate change is not linear. We've had a step change of sorts, a global leap in temperature that has motivated a string of record warm months unlike any we've ever measured. With this global temperature surge, we have had widespread impact on ecosystems like coral reefs, on human systems where floods and droughts and other disasters have inspired fresh political dialogue on just where we are and where we might be headed. But is it fair to say that this year is the warmest one we've ever, and I mean ever, experienced? To help me chat this out, I'm joined as always by the New York Times' Andy Rivkin and our resident paleoecologist, Jacqueline Gill. Was that enough doom and gloom for you guys? (laughs) Oh, never. (laughs) Um, Okay, I have a feeling this is going to be a pretty great show. Our guest this week has been thinking about this stuff for a long time. He's the director of NASA's Goddard Institute for Space Studies, which maintains one of the primary global temperature datasets and helps build climate models to study future changes. He's also an excellent communicator of climate science. His TED Talk has more than a million views, if that's any indication. Gavin Schmidt is also a founding contributor to the climate science blog Real Climate, which has been parsing these questions since 2004, way back before blogging was even cool. Gavin's also been a fierce advocate of advocacy, not of any particular policy reaction to climate change, but for climate scientists' right to responsibly speak as citizens. And that is sort of all what we're about here. Thanks for joining us, Gavin. Thank you for having me. Uh, Gavin is just an amazing uh, man in the sense that he has filled several roles over now a growing stretch of time you know here he is he's the head of a he's become the head of the goddard institute he's become a really great blogger um realclimate.org as i called it years ago is like a, a vital touchstone in this whole discussion about climate science uh, and they've you know been done a good job of distinguishing the science questions from the policy questions and he deserved the big awards they've gotten for that uh, from agu and elsewhere so it's just great to have him on So normally we're used to talking about monthly and annual temperature records in terms of what we've actually measured with thermometers and ocean buoys over the last 150 years or so. So earlier this week, Gavin told me in an email he worked a little bit with Randall Monroe, who writes the XKCD webcomic, to produce what has become, (laughs) this is like an epic uh, cartoon, Um, and it's gone viral, and there's been a lot of climate change visualizations that have gone viral in the last uh, few months, but this thing is crazy. It um, walks you through the last 22,000 years of Earth's history with global temperature and key human events for context. So um, 
I am actually looking at it right now, and some things, uh, for example, are, um, you know, extinction of Pokemon. <laughs> and, um, I don't know, Jacqueline maybe would be interested in, in like, uh, verifying <laughs> that. But, um, but, like, you know, humans domesticate dogs somewhere around 1350 B.C., um, and that's when temperatures start rising a little bit and, you know, scroll down, scroll down and not much changes until we get to, let's say like, you know, 1900. Um, and then there's this sharp rise at the end that's just, you know, us. So, um, what was your involvement in this Gavin, um, beyond, you know, just, um, I guess chatting it out with, with him as he was putting this together? Uh, so this is really, uh, it was Randall's idea. I mean, I, di- I didn't come up with any of the concepts or anything. Um, but uh, he uh, he approached me kind of pretty much when it was almost a done deal to say, hey, you know, are there any issues in how we've baselined it? Are there any issues in how we're dealing with uh, the unresolved variants in these proxy records compared to the instrumental records? So we uh, we discussed how to do that. We tried a few different things and see, saw what worked. Um, uh, you know, we talked a little bit about where you should be starting in terms of the the temperature of the last glacial maximum. Uh, we, you know, we added in a few things like that. But it was, uh, uh, you know, it was it was pretty much a uh, the concept was all was all done already before he talked to me. Yeah, and do you like how it ended up? I loved it. I Great. Loved it. It's 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 one of those things where uh, the point is not in the little cute annotations or you know the little stick figures, but really in the scale of what's going on. You know what what's the time scale and what's and what's the the scale of of temperatures that we're talking about uh, from the ice age to uh, to to the present and to the uh, the next century, uh, and that's really uh, that really comes through. And I think one of the reasons why uh, it has been so uh, popular is because because uh, it's it's kind of visceral. Oh, right, that's a really long time, and that was a big change. And look, we're making those changes that are just as big as those, and uh, and so I think uh, it, it works well. I mean, there's been obviously a little bit of nitpicking about exactly when did we domesticate dogs, and uh, you know what's the actual smoothing on the hand-drawn line that uh, that you end up with. Um, but I think all of those things are really beside the point. Uh, they're kind of like arguing about the size of the stars in Van Gogh's Starry Starry Night, and astronomers complaining that they're not quite the right size. Uh, you know, it's it, that's not the point. Yeah, I mean, I mean, in, inherent in the hand drawing is a little bit of uncertainty in the exact steepness of the curve in the in the last hundred years. And, um, but I think the main criticism that I um, picked up on was that we could have hidden uh, somewhere in the last 20,000 years, um, a spike, you know, potentially, you know, close to what we're doing now, but that's smoothed out just by the nature of climate, um, climate records themselves. You know, when you, when you go back and study tree rings and coral cores and, and those sorts of things, you can't get, uh, down to the annual, uh, time scale very easily. Is that right, Jacqueline? Uh, so it depends in, uh, on the proxy record that you're dealing with. Um, you know, I've talked on the podcast about how we use uh, w- the thing we're really interested in, in is temperature. And when we can't measure temperature with instruments, we use something that stands in for temperature, which is a proxy record. Like you said, it could be um, corals or tree rings or um, 
communities of plants that have affinities for certain temperatures. Um, and so, uh, you know, obviously, there, well, there are a couple things. First of all, this is a global average, and that's going to mask out some of the, the regional uh, events that you see. Um, so there could be, you know, abrupt events that, that have happened in the past, and we know that there were abrupt events like the Younger Dryas cooling event as we come out of the last ice age. Um, things start warming, and then abruptly within probably years to decades, there's a, a, an abrupt return to, to colder conditions. So we know that there were spikes in that record. It's not a completely smooth record. Um, and uh, so, you know, so that's one issue. And, and then the other issue is, uh, you know, it's we, we, we don't have temperature measurements going back 22,000 years that are direct temperature measurements. So we have to use a, an array of different proxy data um, and or um, models um, in some cases. And uh, but I mean, again, I think you know, like Gavin said, I think that kind of misses the point because, you know, and, and I actually really appreciated that um, Randall Monroe was honest about this when he, I mean, it is a hand-drawn line, but, you know, he uses a dashed line to represent where we have, you know, paleoclimate reconstructions. And then we have the temperature record, which is this black line and the kink in that black line, you know, I think is striking. And then in contrast, we have these dashed lines that are the the future climate scenarios. So, I mean, if, if he had just done a single line, I think that would have been much more misleading. But, you know, he made a pretty good effort for a stick figure drawing to, to represent the um, the range of, uh, of ways of knowing about the Earth's climate. Uh, Gavin, I, uh, we, we, we should probably get to some other things with Gavin, too. But one thing he, that's different than those two concerns, I think Gavin alluded to it a little bit, is that um, it's a fundamentally impossible to the the time scale of those records makes it impossible to judge even if there were a wiggle. So it's not even a question of knowing there are wiggles, but statistically, this this the papers that this relies on were stitching together um, data on time scales that make it really hard to make stati even statistical um, kind of comparisons. Is that right? Um, so it's it's not impossible to make those comparisons but as you get to shorter and shorter time scales it becomes more uncertain so you know is it uh possible that at some point in the mid holocene there was some absolutely enormous uh, el nino event that had a that for one year a really really warm temperature yeah i mean that's possible and that would be completely lost in the uh, uh in the proxy records uh but if you're looking for something that's more long term like a 30 year average a 50 year average a century scale uh, change, then it becomes much harder to see where that could have happened that we wouldn't be able to see. Uh, for instance, like the, the 8.2 kilo year event, which was uh, a lake burst in uh, into Hudson Bay. Uh, there's a regional cooling that's recorded in uh, in Greenland, in uh, Speleothems, and lake records in Europe and, and Newfoundland. And that is a, a, a change locally there of, you know, maybe two, maybe three degrees, but it's not a global scale change. And we can detect that that happened over a period uh, of about, uh, you know, 70 to 100 years. And that's very, very clear in the ice core record. So, you know, but there's nothing else in that ice core record in the, in the whole of the Holocene that looks anything like that uh, in the other way. So, you know, we we can, uh, you know, it's very hard to prove a, a negative, but there's there's no there's no evidence that there has been anything like what we've seen in the last 150 years in the entirety of the Holocene. Yeah, and just so we can get some definition straight, the Holocene is this entire record that 
that was in the XKCD comic the last 22,000 years. Basically since the... Uh, no, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> okay, sorry. <laughs> the Holocene is in the record. Is, is, the right. Holocene is in that entire record, but it is not all... So the, the Holocene doesn't start until about 11,500 years ago. So there were Okay, a so bun- what's the difference between the last... When, when, when that... Um, when the comic starts and the Holocene. Uh, so the, Gavin, can I take this one or do you want it? Oh, for All sure. Right. Yeah, so the ahead. comic starts roughly 22,000 years ago. So it's using the BCE um, scale. So 20,000 BCE. And so that's around the peak of the last ice age. So when the ice reached its furthest southern extent and um, then starts retreating. And during this period of about, you know, 20 to say, uh, 12,000 years ago is the we we consider that the period of deglaciation. So this process of the ice melting and retreating, and there are, you know, coming out of the last ice age wasn't like flipping a switch. It didn't just go from cold to warm. There were a number of flickers. It was it's like if you went into a room, turned the lights on and off a few times, kind of rapidly, um, and then turned the lights back on. And and the lights turning on would be the start of the Holocene, our current warm period. And so there were a number of these kind of abrupt events on uh, the type that Gavin was talking about that I talked about. But once we hit the Holocene, um, you know, with a couple exceptions, there's there's nothing quite um, you don't see anything like what you see during the, the period of deglaciation. So the Holocene is when we're, we're soundly in our current interglacial as opposed to the, you know, the ice age or glacial conditions that that preceded it. It is. It is a really cool. It is a really cool effort to try to convey things in a new way. I would have loved it because of the way it naturally scrolls. I would have loved it to scroll to a point where you have to click and go, "Oh, let's learn more." It, 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 to learn more, go here, and then has a you know goes to real climate. But of course, uh, I mean, but of course, that's for us to do with it. Uh, I mean, he does great stuff. It's 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 a great provocation. Uh, it, but you always have to ask the question in, in communication: What's the goal? If the goal is to motivate those of us uh, who are already concerned about global warming, absolute success. But if the goal is to create a f- more, a broader conversation, probably a fail because essentially because of these issues that are real, um, you know, it gives lots of ammunition to people who I, have the reflexive. I, I, dis- I, dis- um, I really disagree. Good. Um, you know, the, uh, you know, this this got uh, a lot of play uh, in places that you wouldn't have normally seen a discussion of proxy records or a discussion of uh, you know interannual variability, and people are uh, and people are responding to the main point, which is the, the scales involved. Um, so, you know, I'm seeing Tim O'Reilly retweeted and Elon Musk, and uh, you know, and lots of uh, lots of places where you know they don't they're not climate geeks. So, uh, you know, th- but they're this- green geeks. Well, but, you know, as <laughs> in the, the small sample size of, of people that I'm friends with on Facebook, which are, you know, friends and family and not necessarily colleagues or, or climate geeks or green geeks um, there, you know, and I talk about this stuff a lot, um, probably to the point where people tune it out. But you know, I was surprised at how many times I got tagged, like, Jacqueline, is this right? Is this true? Oh, my God, this is shocking, you know, and, and it's interesting. It's just like, this is my job, right? This XKCD figure is my job and what I do every day. And I talk about it a lot. Um, and it just shocked me just how much people who normally don't engage, who normally, you know, kind of don't really think about it were just, I mean, it wasn't shocking to me, because like I said, I see it all the time. But 
people were so just surprised by this figure. It was there. There was people described a visceral feeling when they got to the bottom and saw the uptick. Mm-hmm. Right. So let's burrow down. Side tick. Yeah. So, yeah. Side tick. <laughs> so so let's burrow down into the science of this a little bit more um, and ask this question: Is 2016 the warmest year in the history of human civilization? <laughs> So when you take a really long view like that graphic, like the XKCD, um, putting this exact year in the context of the last 10 or 20 millennia is pretty hard to do. But, you know, as Andy has pointed out, there's a really interesting scientific question here, which is how do you accurately compare the current climate to past climates? But there is also a philosophical question, and that is... What does it mean to know, to have that visceral feeling that you see that uptick at the end of of this long scrolling graphic and see that we are very quickly leaving behind the conditions that fostered that that sort of stable climate throughout the the last at least 10,000 years of of human um, existence? Um, So and also, you know, how like how how is what is the best way that scientists and journalists should talk about this? Because there is a lot of. Of, of interesting science here. You can't say necessarily um, one way or the other, um, but just having the conversation in general, I think has been really interesting this week. I agree that it has been, it has been interesting. Um, but then I think a lot of times you can get kind of caught up in the weeds. I mean, we're, we are, uh, as humans, we are now a geological force, uh, and official, unofficially, that's been true for a long time. And and officially, if, in, in fact, it's it's uh, we're now uh, about to join the uh, Anthropocene uh, officially. Um, uh, not quite yet. It's well, going to be okay. many years. I'm on the group. Okay. Well, I, I don't really care. But unofficially, I know I don't uh, either. <laughs> unofficially, we we are a geological force. You know, we are going to be uh, you know aliens who come down, or a new civilization that comes. Uh, along in uh, in 50 million years uh, will be able to know that we were here because of our uh, record in in the in the geological sediments it will be a layer of plastic it will be uh, carbon isotope excursions there will be oxygen isotope excursions there will be increases in uh, uh, in in sedimentation rates all of these things that uh, in previous uh, geological epochs we've associated with all sorts of different uh, situations uh, but uh, our our mark has been made on the geological record. And people don't realize that. People think, oh, well, it's just the same as it's always been. And so when you kind of confront people with the fact that we are a geological force, it, it really uh, it kind of brings things home to people. It's true. That's that Clark at All paper also from Nature Climate Change earlier in the year, Gavin. I, did you guys write about that on Real Climate? This was the I did not. Conse- I just even the head, the title of this paper was amazing: "Consequences of 21st Century Policy for Multimillennial Climate and Sea Level." And the best graph it has this graph that shows basically XKCDs uh, horizontally. It shows the Holocene as being blah 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 blah. You know, sort of a pretty much straight line, and then we get to choose both temperature and sea level for the next 10,000 years plus uh, with with our choices in the next few decades. And that that is a very sobering image as well. So it's, it's kind of like the if he did chapter two of his scroll, uh, which would go into these four different trajectories for the different choices we have with different emission scenarios. It's kind of uh, maybe there's a chapter two to do. It's, it, to, to get back to, to Eric's question of, of, you know, 
of is this the warmest is 2016 the warmest year in human civilization or is it the warmest year in the Holocene are we pushing temperatures out of the Pleistocene um, you know the last two and a half million years of, of ice ages how far back you know do we go before we hit what we're, we're projected to hit in the next hundred years you know I, I run into these a lot um, you know as justifications for studying climate change etc um, and just as a way of kind of hitting people home or hitting home to people just the magnitude of the changes and it's it and I kind of had an epiphany in the in the last couple of weeks mostly talking to Eric and others about this question and it's it's like it doesn't matter if it's the hottest to me as much as it matters or, or I guess what really matters to me is the mechanisms by that are controlling or governing the climate system are fundamentally changing right so if you look at that figure and you, we could quibble about if you scroll up and down the XKCD figure, you could quibble about whether or not 2016 is higher or lower than some of the temperatures we reach in the mid-Holocene, right? And, you know, climate, climate skeptics love to say, like, oh, you know, what about the mid-Holocene um, or the early Holocene climate optimum? It was warmer. Um, but it was warmer because we had more incoming solar energy, you know, because of changes in the Earth's tilt and orbit, right? That was... Uh, only in the Northern Hemisphere. Sorry, yeah, in the Northern Hemisphere somewhere. I'm totally revealing my Northern Hemisphere bias. Um, but, right, so the, there's, a, there's a reason that it's... There's an astronomical reason for why those temperatures were warmer, you know, 9,000 years ago, potentially, than present. And based on the earth's tilt and orbit conditions now you know we're we're basically kicking out of the tra the trajectory of the earth's climate system so we're, we're we're taking over by adding greenhouse gases to the atmosphere as and changing the earth's albedo um you know through changing land cover and land surface um and land, with land use change you know all of those forces that we're imposing on the earth's climate system are fundamentally different than than the ones that governed those warmer temperatures in the past. And that to me, I think is, is almost a more powerful or more relevant concept. You know, we're sort of hijacking the climate system, which I think is a point that gets lost when you try to compare two periods of past climate change. Yeah, and this is a problem too, with just looking at global temperature averages. Um, if you had a map of proxy records and correct me again, Jacqueline, as you, are very good at doing if I if you need to but um, you can see uh, that the current warming is, is more focused on the poles or is warming faster you know the geographical um, the geographical sort of map of the current warming is different than what happened in the mid Holocene that that um, that we're we're having it, it, it that's a that's a key that it's from a different process right i think actually that's a very important thing like because people often uh say well how do you know why anything is changing at any time uh and we look for those fingerprints not just in the spatial pattern but also uh you know from the the top of the atmosphere down to the bottom of the ocean uh we can look for the fingerprints of any particular change and it turns out they're all different right the you know the sun has a a different fingerprint than carbon dioxide does which has a different fingerprint than orbital wobbles that has a different fingerprint to uh, aerosol and air pollution effects on climate and we can pull those things 
comes out. And so, you know, it's it's it. There are a thousand things that could be causing climate to change at any one time. But when you go back into the record and you see, you know, whose fingerprints are on the, any particular climate change, you can do a pretty good job at, uh, you know, um, acquitting, you know, most of those things that you just thought of, uh, and what is left over and what fits really well for the current period uh, is is greenhouse gases. And, and obviously that wasn't the case for the mid Holocene or the the last interglacial or the Pliocene. And that's what I'm looking well, back. I mean, at. We, we could uh, do, do you want to like have a little bit about 2016 itself? Yeah, Cause, yeah. Because we because we haven't actually finished 2016, and yet we're all so confident that 2016 is going to be the warmest. Sure. So, year. Gavin, going back to April, I think was the first time I saw you tweet this. Oh, actually, I, so I tweeted it after the February data. So it was in early March that I first tweeted it. But I'd actually done the I'd done the calculation in January, um, and it was always it was it was it was also true there. It's just that I didn't uh, I didn't tweet okay. it. Okay. So okay, yeah. So so for for. For everyone, um, this um, so Gavin's been keeping up every month with um, you know his his center maintains a, a global temperature database, and based on that um, based on that global temperature, uh, you can calculate the likelihood that this year will reach uh, a new record. Which you know we can argue how important annual records are, but um, but what's clear is that this year is so far. Uh, above last year that that we we knew almost instantly that this year would be a new annual record so so gavin was that at all you know how it's played out was that at all um eye-opening for for you to see i I mean because i you know i expected a record based on based on what you've just said but it seems like uh it's jumped a little bit higher than i um thought it would (laughs) maybe i'm alone in that well this is the thing about science right you know you you think you understand something and you kind of put yourself out there and you make a prediction um and you know sometimes those predictions aren't going to come true for for decades and other times they're going to come true really really quickly uh it's it's always fascinating when you predict something based on your understanding and it happens uh because because you know that your understanding is incomplete. And so the fact that the world uh, and the universe uh, seems to agree with you anyway um, is, is always one of those things that just blow me away. You know, every time that, uh, you know, we've done uh, computer simulations and, you know, you've checked against, uh, like we did, we did computer simulations of the 8.2 Killia event that we mentioned earlier on. Uh, and you look at how the methane changed and you look at how the isotopes changed and you look at how... Uh, uh, the dust changed or the beryllium 10 proxy or this and they all line up ding 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 and you're going wow how 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 is that possible unless we actually understand something about the real world and given how complex the real world is that always blows me away we're going to pause the show here for just a moment to recognize our sponsor wonder capital what if you could help combat climate change and make money at the same time Introducing Wonder Capital, the award-winning online investment platform that allows individuals to invest directly in solar energy projects across the U.S. Wonder's online investment platform allows you to earn up to 11% annually while diversifying your portfolio, curbing pollution, and combating global climate change. Your investment in Wonder's fully managed solar investment fund goes directly to helping U.S. small and medium-sized businesses install solar panels. As those businesses repay their loans to Wonder, 
you receive monthly payments directly deposited into your bank account. Wonder has three funds available. The Wonder Income Fund, which returns 6% a year during a 10-year period, the Wonder Bridge Fund, which returns 11% a year during a 2-year period, and the Wonder Term Fund, which returns 8.5% a year during a 7-year period. Best of all, Wonder Capital doesn't take any fees for investing your money. Create an account for free at wondercapital.com warm. That's wonder with a U, wondercapital.com warm. Wonder Capital, do well and do good. And now back to the show. So unfortunately, Gavin has to leave us early, um, but we are going to continue the conversation um, without him and, and hope that he'll be back on again soon. Yeah, there was one point I really wanted to make, which kind of um, refutes some of the misunderstandings I've seen in some of the reporting on the really awesome XKCD cartoon. Um, one example that was shared with me was um, Micheline Duclef on the NPR blog Goats and Soda, which is a great name, by the way, uh, has a, a, a piece titled Epic Climate Cartoon Goes Viral, but it has one key problem. And in that, they talk about how, um, the as we mentioned, you know, you have these three periods, the, the paleo period with the dash line, the solid line representing the modern, and then the projections with the long dash into the future. And, you know, in that piece and in, and elsewhere, a few people said, oh, it's, you know, you're really, the, the cartoon's misleading because it's really comparing apples and oranges because you have, you know, model data from the past and then the instrumental record from the present. And I just really want to drive home the point that uh, the there, while models were used in the papers that this, uh, the, that the XKCD cartoon draws from, um, specifically work by folks like um, Jeremy Shacken and um, Sean Marcotte, um, they are integrating proxy data, which are, you know, you know, one step, much step closer to re to reconstructions of real temperature. Um, you know, they're obviously they have their problems. We've talked about that on the show before, but it's not it's not just and, I, and I'm putting just in invisible scare quotes that you can't see. Uh, at home, but um, it's not just a model. Um, we, there are we do have ways of reconstructing past temperatures and from proxy data, um, and we can know quite a lot about about that. So rather than thinking about it like apples and oranges, I prefer to think about the two kinds of data as more like Granny Smith apples and Macintosh apples. Right? They're they're still apples. They're just different ways of knowing um, about the Earth's climate. A plus example metaphor there, Jack. <laughs> Thanks. Um, yeah, I actually had um, had uh, Jeremy Shacken and Sean Marcotte on an email chain on this exact uh, topic um, this week about uh, is 2016 the warmest year uh, over the last 20,000 years? And um, the, 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 the answer from, from this group of climate scientists that I was speaking with, or I guess not speaking, um, it's weird, you know, you can't, you can't say speaking if you're emailing because you're not actually speaking anyway. Conversing, but, maybe? <laughs> yeah, conversing. I don't know. Um, they had the same answer. They, they said that it, we, we, we really don't know, um, if there was a freak El Nino, you know, as Gavin said, that happened, you know, like 11,264 BCE or not. You know, we don't we don't know because um, something like that would be smoothed out in in their reconstruction. But 
Um, that, but the answer that, that each of these climate scientists gave is that it really doesn't matter because the mechanism that we have, the mechanism that we are using, humans are using to warm the planet right now is different than, than what that, that warm period was, you know, 10,000 years ago. And it will lead to warmer temperatures than what we have now. We're, you know, 2016 in that sense is just sort of like the, the, um, the prelude to a, a much warmer century uh, for, the, for, for the next several decades at least. So that is the key point that, that, that they wanted to make. And that I think is the key point that XKCD makes so well. Also, I just want to point out that um, XKCD has a long history of really great climatey comics. They've, they've kind of drawn a, a couple of them in this one. Um, one of the favorites that I have is the idea of ice age units, right? When we talk about four degrees Celsius warming, is that a lot? Is that not a lot? It doesn't seem like a big deal, but um, he talks about that as being one ice age unit, right? Because it's the difference between now and the last ice age. So the planet notices the difference. Um, so yeah, I don't know. He's, I would love to meet him. We should have him on the show sometime. Yeah. Yeah. He, he's also nerded out a little bit on temperature versus Celsius, which is a t- topic near and dear to my heart. Um, where, uh, where, you know, in different contexts, scientists and science communicators can use um, Fahrenheit and Celsius equally well. You know, it's really easy to talk about um, about Fahrenheit in, in terms of, of you know, a, an evening weather cast where you say, you know, low 80s, mid 80s, you know, in, 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 a, in a sense that it's easy for, for people to grasp um, temperature ranges on the, on the, on in order of tens, um, and it, but you know for science purposes, Celsius is obviously um, much better because it is grounded in a, a, a scale that makes physical sense in terms of water, um, where you know a zero to one hundred scale is is a is a measure of how how liquid is this water you know is it is the this liquid water closer to being solid water or is this liquid water closer to being you know vapor water so um so that's an easy you know zero to 100 scale that we can we can put on 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 on, uh you know instantly recognizable so um yeah there the the nerd quotient is high with this one for sure (laughs) of course the new york times that's all irrelevant because we can't do celsius still oh oh really you have a style guide only in fahrenheit yeah this has been a long-standing gripe so it, this is the whole you know the 3.6 degree fahrenheit temperature oh god you know, don't get that, <laughs> it's a that nightmare scientists have been arguing about it's just so clunky i don't know it's just i actually i, I actually know. care less about that than the if or if i could change one thing about the new york times style guide it would be if you could call professors especially female professors doctor or professor instead of ms or mrs it gets oh weird the, that exists it sticks in my feminist <laughs> science craw well, wait a minute no no if a, if if the science section has someone in there who's a phd or an md they'll they call the, they call her a doctor really because i was they totally all, i've never been reading it i've read like ms so-and-so's discovery mm. and people have said oh that's just how the new york times does that oh yeah oh, i think the new york, Time, new york times does, says Medi- mini- medical doctors are doctor but like no. not real doctors like me i could be oh, I like they, they always say mr obama or blah 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 you know it's always the the gender specific um, um yeah. in, introduction title since i moved yeah. to the opinion side i didn't have to do that because uh, actually on the blogs there was no history of having um 
titles anyway. So I got to sort of escape. So you can do whatever you want. That. Yeah. You you are your own god. Oh in, my god. In the New York Times. <laughs> well, whatever. It's all it's all a journey. Um, all right. Um, all right. So with that, um, we will transition to positive feedback. Um, so I do have one, Jacqueline, <gasps> this week. Oh, I lost the bet with Andy. Damn it. <laughs> Um, so our, our president, uh, Mr. Barack Obama, has <laughs> announced today that he will designate um, a, uh, a new marine protected area in the Atlantic, the first marine protected area in the Atlantic, which is heretofore will be called the Northeast Canyons and Seamounts Marine National Monument. And this is right off of Cape Cod. Um, there's a couple of really cool underwater canyons there and some some uh, some underwater mountains. And more importantly, it's a very sensitive area for fish. And I think that's really uh, what he's going for in doing this is sort of laying out further his conservation legacy. Um, but but it, it's nice to see, you know, it, in in opposition to local and it's somewhat liberal you know, northeasterners that are nearby and and have their livelihoods based on this specific patch of ocean uh you know is takes the long view and says well if we don't protect this area then it won't be here anymore <laughs> so um we will preserve it so i'm yeah a plus barack obama but to me there's an even more exciting um upworthy uh development related to that uh this this week which was uh, the launch of globalfishingwatch.org, which is this incredible um, way for anyone in the world to track thousands of fishing boats um, that are normally out of sight, out of mind. And that's uh, and you can, uh, thanks to Google and SkyTruth and uh, Oceana, now there's this tool where it'll be so much easier for the world to, um, from a distance, um, say, hey, that boat is fishing in a protected area like the one the president has just um, uh, launched, um, along with the others, there were there were a bunch more from other countries uh, this week as well, announced at this big meeting in D.C. And it's just fantastic to see the power of big data being applied to filling these gaps in governance and on the on the global oceans. So it's a big hooray. I, I wrote about it on Dot Earth. If I had like exclamation points and hooray signs and stuff, they'd be there. <laughs> Is this analogous at all? Um, you think? Um, Andy, to this sort of iconic um, Landsat tracking of, of of deforestation in the Amazon, you know, like 20 years ago? Well, actually, I referred to uh, what I referred to in, in, uh, along these lines was um, Greenpeace and others have done a really good job of using um, remote sensing to uh, go even more precise than deforestation to go and say, hey, there's a palm oil plantation being um, this clearing happening in Borneo that, um, you know, for this particular palm oil company. So you can get very granular now with um, remote sensing data like that and then use YouTube or whatever to get the information around right away. And here you have this possibility. The algorithms, are it's got like machine learning in there. So as it goes, it gets smarter and it's it can tell like a, a trawler or a long liner from the pattern of the way the ship moves. And, and the machine is doing a lot of the, the, the computer is doing a lot of the analysis. So it used to be, as I said in my piece, it used to be someone be sitting there you know, for hours or days trying to look at ship tracks going, hey, this one's suspicious. But now it's happening in real time almost. And that that really does change the game in this in this arena because 
Um, you can't, if you're a small, small Pacific Island nation, you just do not have the capacity to be out there patrolling your 100,000 square miles of, uh, of economic zone. It's really cool. So we have a new sort of like sentient uh, captain planet of the oceans. <laughs> right, right, right. All we need is like the right, the, the ray, the tractor beam to come yeah. down. And, and the pull. right color of, of like spandex that they're wearing. <laughs> <laughs> it's cool. I've got one. It's super nerdy. Uh, it's a new paper that came out in the journal Oikos, O-I-K-O-S. Um, it's called The Priority of Prediction and Ecological Understanding. And it's um, it's just it's just kind of a fun thought paper about the importance of modeling and prediction. Um, there's a, a sentence in the abstract I like. Um, Models are where ecological understanding is stored, and they are the source of all predictions. No prediction is possible without a model of the world. And for a long time, ecology, which is um, one of my fields, um, has uh, kind of abandoned prediction as a central focus, and which has problems for reproducibility, but also um, in a changing world, in an era of global change, um, prediction is more important than ever. And so the I just think it's a nifty paper. Um, might spark some some debate. Um, it's by Jeff Houlihan in uh, the H-O-U-L-A-H-A-N in the latest issue of uh, Oikos. Great. Um, if you like what we're doing here, please tell a friend. And as always, feel free to hit us up with your thoughts on future guests, show ideas, or pretty much anything, even, you know, your favorite part of the future upcoming issue of Oikos. <laughs> Our email address is ourwarmregards at gmail. And you can follow us on Twitter at ourwarmregards, where we almost exclusively tweet self-congratulatory praise and one-sided arguments pertaining to whatever Twitter fight either I or Jacqueline has gotten ourselves into for that day. <laughs> that is just how we roll. <laughs> All right. So for, for Gavin, uh, Jacqueline, Andy, and our producer, Stephen Lacey, I am Eric Holthouse. Thanks for listening, everybody. And we'd also like to close by thanking Wonder Capital for their support of the Warm Regards podcast. Wonder Capital is an award-winning online investment platform that allows you to invest in solar projects across the U.S. Create an account for free at wondercapital.com warm. That's wonder with a U, capital.com warm. Wonder Capital, do well and do good.